Well, my name is Scott Reveley. I'm part of the pastoral team here at New Life Church and am uh, thankful to be with you uh, this morning. And um, it's occurred to me that everyone sort of, more or less, has their own idea about what church should be like. Everyone has their own idea also about what Jesus should be like. In fact, every generation makes Jesus into their own image. I remember growing up seeing paintings. I think they were hanging in our Sunday school room in the basement of our church with Jesus painted as a blonde, blue-eyed man with a pale complexion and a flowing uh, bathrobe. I know that in uh, the times of the Civil War in the United States, both sides invoked the name of Jesus. Both sides claimed he was on their side. If you go to the university, Jesus may be a good teacher. Period. During the Jesus movement of... uh, what, 40, 50 years ago, Jesus was love. Love, love, love. That's sort of all. During our day, it's very common, I think, to make Jesus into some kind of a tool or uh, some kind of a person who will make our families happy. He is an agent that will uh, help us be successful. He will grant to us, we hope, mental health. It's interesting that all throughout history, every generation has its own problems. Every generation reconfigures Jesus for their own use. That happened throughout history and it's happened, it happened in Jesus' own generation. They were looking for a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and reestablish the nation of Israel and sit on the throne of David forever. And so in Jesus' own generation and throughout history, it really does pose for us the question, when you come to Jesus, do you start with Jesus as He is, or do you start with Jesus as you want Him to be? Is there any other configuration of the person of Jesus or any variation on whom you'd like Him to be that can actually save you? Come to church. Can the church make Jesus into what they want Him to be? Or another way to ask the question, do we change a church to conform to Jesus or do we change Jesus to conform to the church? These questions and more will come up as we read Matthew chapter 16. 
So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and have them open if you don't have them open from the reading a moment ago. And I want to look at those few verses because they are really some of the central verses in the entire gospel. Uh, some call this the great confession. Peter made the great confession. In Matthew 22, there's the great commandment. In Matthew 28, there is the great commission. And it really is the great uh, confession that sets the table for the other two. Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The setting is that Jesus took them to the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is outside of the land of Egypt to the or land of Israel, excuse me, to the north, and it's really you, you could probably say a God-forsaken corner of the world. It's north in the land that was long known for Baal worship. It's near the temple of what was then the temple of Pan, a contemporary god as such. And what do we find, even with that brief introduction, is that Jesus took them to the pluralistic center of their region, which is not completely unlike our world today. We would love for it to be simple, at least many would love for it to be simple, where this is a Christian nation and everybody's Christian and everyone agrees with us. But the reality is that that isn't the case. And I'm not even completely sure we want it to be the case. And here it certainly isn't. Here there are multiple uh, moving parts as far as multiple gods go. And Jesus steps in the middle of that and asks his disciples a question. Because in this collection of gods, in this collection of religious options, there is one that is unique. And Jesus asks His disciples about that. You see, all throughout the Gospel, people have been asking questions about Jesus, and now it's His turn to ask the question. And He turns to them and He says, Who do people say that I am. And this, this makes me smile because what I, what I hear, maybe you don't hear this, maybe you're way more mature than me, but what I hear when I hear this is I hear a junior boy asking his sister if the red-headed girl likes him. Does she like me? Who do, what, what does she say about me? That's the, that's the kind of question it feels like, right? Well, this is, a, this is totally not what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come to a point in His ministry where He recognizes that He can't really go forward if His disciples don't get who He really is. In fact, the movement will grind to a halt if they are not 
clear on who Jesus is and why He has come. And so he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And he's checking their readiness. He's checking to see if they've understood all that he has been showing them. I mean, think about this. This is a, not a bad time to review what you've seen in the book of Matthew. I mean, it's the most, it's most remarkable. Everywhere he goes, people are, are flocking to him. They're bringing the sick. They're bringing the demon-possessed. Sometimes they're just touching his robe and they're being healed. They're going away for days at a time, starving, only to have him feed thousands and thousands of them. To get from one place to the other, all he does is walk on water. This is not, things are not normal here. And he's wondering if the disciples actually are getting what he is showing them. And there's a chance that they weren't, I suppose, because the opposition was working pretty hard to, to have it be otherwise. You remember we just finished this little uh, tit-for-tat with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what he meant was, be careful of the teaching. The teaching that your religion is performance. And so he asked, what do people, who do people say that I am? And they say, well... Some are saying John the Baptist. Well, if you recall, again, this is review. So much of this is review. And it just builds on top of itself here. John the Baptist, that's what Herod thought. Remember? That uh, he wanted to find out uh, about Jesus because he was worried that John the Baptist had come back to life. Others say, you're Elijah. And Elijah... People were looking for Elijah, expecting that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says that he would send somebody in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he'd turn the hearts of the uh, fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And then the Old Testament ends. So they were looking for Elijah before the awesome day of the Lord comes. Some said, you're Jeremiah. Jesus call for repentance. Repent in the kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Had a familiar ring to those who were versed in the language of the prophets. Particularly Jeremiah, who continually called for repentance and called out the evil religious leaders. So Jesus gets this laundry list, you might say, of options. Who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And really, this is the, this is the question, isn't it? It's the question each one of you must answer. It's the question that uh, Peter, the disciples, and the church have to come up with the right answer for. And so he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And that statement is a statement that is the opposite of how I began this morning. It is a fixed statement about who Jesus is. You don't get to make Him who you want Him to be. He is who He is. And He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now when Jesus said, or when Peter said, you are the Christ, He was not merely saying Jesus' last name. You do get this, right? Christ. The word Christ is the Greek translation for Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And you see why this is such a big statement. To identify Jesus as the Messiah of Israel is to really telescope that one simple statement throughout all of history. So that Peter said, Jesus, you are the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. You are the seed of Abraham who will bless the nations. You are a deliverer like your namesake Joshua. You are the prophet like Moses. You are the king who will reign forever on the throne of David. You are the Messiah. It isn't merely that He was the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. He is God Himself. As you read the New Testament, it goes over and over and over and over the same ground so that we recognize this is not any mortal man. Yes, He functions as a Messiah for Israel, and He is the Son of the living God. I suppose if there is anything unmovable in history, it is the fact that Jesus is the Son of the living God. You can't make Him into something less and have Him still be your Savior. You can't make Him into something less and have Him still be the foundation for the church. Jesus is all that the Old Testament said He would be And this is one of those moments, and maybe you've had some of them. I suppose the birth of a child is the closest that I may have come. But there are others when things just snap into focus and you realize this is really important. This is really true. And all of a sudden, all of the, all of the peripheral noise disappears and you can see the one thing that's really important. This is that moment. You are the Son of the living God. Christ. And this is really 16 chapters into uh, Matthew. We finally get here where somebody, Peter, speaks for the group and he says, you are the Christ. 
And all of these things Jesus has been doing have been to lead us up to this conclusion. See, again, I, he's a, yes, He's a great teacher. We have the Sermon on the Mount in the first part of the book. Yes, he, he does good for people. We see all kinds of healings and feedings and all sorts of things that Jesus does. But until we recognize that He is the Anointed One, the Christ, the One whom God has designated to be the Savior of the world, we will not have a Savior. You're the Christ. The Son of the living God. And then, Jesus explains the significance of Peter's answer. He asks the question, then Peter answers, and now Jesus tells for us, or spells it out, what, why is this answer important? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon Barjona is an interesting way to uh, talk about Peter. There are a couple things that really are important there. One is Jonah is a, vari a, vari a variation on the way to say the name John. I mean, other places it talks about Simon, son of John. Okay, so just, so, but Jesus chose this variation. He, he wanted us to somehow think of Jonah because he had just, if you look back, just a few verses, right? We want a sign. What sign are you going to get? The sign of Jonah. So Jesus, Jesus is anchoring us to what we must be looking for. The death and resurrection. By, by even, even by the name He calls Simon. He points back to that sign of Jonah and He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But rather, my Father who is in heaven. Simon, you did not get this because you are Jonah's son you got this because I am God's Son. In other words, it is the gift of your Father in Heaven that revealed this to you. You get it as a gift. It's not because of your natural lineage. It's because there's a Father in heaven who loves you and wants you to know His Son Jesus. So He has revealed this to you. Now, I, I don't want to just assume that Matthew had extra ink and just wrote that because uh, he didn't have anything better to write. Because I want you to know that understanding who Jesus is is more than a simple math equation that anyone can do. Coming to know Jesus is not the same as resolving a geometric proof. 
Just because you've been given the right way of thinking or the right theorems, you can somehow figure it out. That is not the way this works. This is a supernatural event. To know Jesus is a supernatural gift. If you figure Jesus out, it is because it has been given to you as a gift of grace. You cannot underestimate that. See, I think a lot of us think of coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus the same way we would if a a Girl Scout came to our front door and said, would you like some Girl Scout cookies? And we might do a little bit of calculus. Let Let me see the label. How much fat is in there? How many calories are in there? And you think, oh, I remember Girl Scout cookies from when I was a kid. And you do all of these things and finally you just decide, yes, give me a box of Thin Mint. That's not how people come to know Jesus. And I I, I say that because it's so tempting for us to think we can talk someone into it. Or worse, to feel the pressure like we must. And here, Jesus didn't even feel that pressure. Jesus is a year and a half, two years into this, maybe longer. And he's like, who do people say I am? My heavenly Father's revealed this to you. And so, I say that partly so that when you represent Jesus outside of this room, when you go to your neighbors, when you go to your co-workers, you don't feel the pressure because it's going to be a work of God or it's not. And I say that too so that you will love your Father in Heaven and recognize what a gift He has given us to know His Son. To bring you here this morning was a gift of God so that you might see Jesus. It is not an accident. It is not the same as deciding to go to the grocery store. You come to know Jesus as a gift. A lot of times we'll say, we'll ask the question, how are people saved? And some, will, you know, some people think they're saved by works. Some people think they're saved by doing good. They're not saved by doing good. The Scripture says, and we would say, you're saved by grace. Why are you saved by grace? Because it's only by grace you come to see Jesus. It is a gift to you. That's what grace is. It's a gift. And it is a gift for you to come to Jesus. And it was a gift for Peter to come to Jesus. Every time, every time, something supernatural must take place for someone to be drawn to Jesus. Well, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it.
and you are Peter. Now, we, we know him as Peter. We don't really know him as anything else, do we? Cephas or Simon. But Peter is the name that if you were to translate it not as a name, it would be rock. And then Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church. And it's not exactly the same word for rock. There are two words for rock. They're related. Jesus is making a word play. He is using this opportunity when he names Peter, you are Peter, as a way to reveal more about himself. So that they would hear Peter and Jesus would say, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And it's likely that Jesus didn't, I mean, likely, it's certain that Jesus did not intend the church to be built on Peter himself, but rather that he used the occasion of naming Peter the rock as a way of saying there is this massive rock upon which the church will be built, namely, Jesus. This is a, um, really a reference, you might say, or a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 26, verse 16. Again, when, I'm, when we're saying, who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what Isaiah says about him. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Okay, that very, sounds very much like I'm going to build my church on something, doesn't it? I laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. If you believe in Jesus, you will not be in trouble. Because He is the foundation. See, and I, I say He is the foundation of the church. That's what's coming next. On this rock I will build my church. It's interesting. We would tend to make that individual, wouldn't we? To say, on, on this rock you should build your life. Which wouldn't be bad advice at all. But it would be very American and very much, much miss the point that Jesus is building the people of God. He is building the church. He is creating a community that is under His Father in heaven, a kingdom of which He is the King. And so He's building that church on Himself, the rock, a foundation in Zion, tested in sure. And then it says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell is the easiest way, I think, to understand the phrase gates of hell 
is to understand it as a way of expressing the idea of death. In other words, death will not triumph over the church. Death will not claim the church. To be part of the church of Jesus is to have the promise of the resurrection. Let me say this a different way. On this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So identified is the church with Jesus that His victory over death is their victory over death. That His triumph over the grave is their triumph over the grave. That His crushing the head of the serpent counts for their victory over the serpent. In other words, the indestructible life of Jesus trickles down to the church. And that's why the church must stay as close as possible to Jesus. That's why the chief work of the church is to go back and back and back and back to Jesus. That's why we talk about Him on Sunday every week. That's why life groups, again, talk about Jesus. Our whole idea is that we must cement ourselves to Jesus and not do our own thing. Not have the freedom to think of Jesus however we would like. Because the only way for us to have victory over death, or the gates of hell if you prefer, is to identify with Jesus by faith and claim His victory as our own. promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it is not a promise that any one local church will not have trouble. It's not a promise that the church will not face persecution. It's not a promise that things will be easy. It is a promise that Jesus will protect His church. And that Jesus Himself will see to their victory. Then he tells Peter, and I'm, I want you to know I'm, I'm skipping a lot of the homework that I would do rather than like, blah, here's all the stuff on this, because there is a long history with this text of the church, really all the way back to the beginning, and it's been misunderstood for years and years, and I'm skipping most of that trying to get you to the point. And the point is, you've got to identify with Jesus to gain victory over death. And you've got to identify with Jesus, and the church must stay close to Him because the identity of Jesus and the identity of the church are uh, really so closely tied that we cannot and dare not separate ourselves from Him. Then verse 19 says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, again, those are things, that, like I said, that have been misunderstood for years. I'm just going to say it as simply as I can. I believe that the keys are the... Well, this is going to... You know this. You all even have them in your pocket, don't you? The keys are the means of entry. The keys are the means by which you get into a door or a car or something else. And so what... Jesus is entrusting to Peter and then uh, subsequently to the rest of the uh, apostles is the gospel by which people enter the kingdom. He's saying, I am going to give to you the means by which people will enter the kingdom. We are building this church and I'm going to give you the keys so you can let people in. Then he says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This binding and loosing is um, a challenge <laughs> to, to, to understand for sure. But it has to do with the authority that Jesus has to, to, to free or to, to bind or to free people to bind or to loose. And I would say very simply that it represents the authority to establish the rules and norms of this new group. Peter is giving that, or he is giving Peter and the apostles the keys to entry. And then once people come in, he is uh, delegating the authority to establish the rules and the norms of the group. Chapter 18, this authority is shared with the rest of the disciples. Now that may sound a little bit unusual that he delegates his authority to the disciples, but we see that over and over. We see it in the Great Commission in chapter 28 as well. In the whole idea of binding something on earth and having it bound in heaven and loosing something on earth and having it loosed in heaven seems a little unusual to us, except that the Father in heaven has revealed this to Peter. This is a gift from the Father in heaven. And so being bound in heaven and loosed in heaven, loosed on earth, bound on earth, the connection there is that they are accountable to the Father, and they receive their direction from the Father. In other words, it is very much like Jesus taught them to pray in chapter 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So on this on earth as it is in heaven, sort of... um, Connection in the prayer is the same connection we see here in the church. In other words, may God's will be done in the church as it is in heaven. 
And so, what do we make of all this? This is such an important text that um, it's easy to kind of go off on a, a number of different questions, but what do we make of this? I would say that the, the main thing that I hope you will make of this is that the identity of Christ is foundational to the identity of the church. What a church is, is a result of who Jesus is. To get Jesus wrong is to end up with something other than a church. In other words, the central question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am, is the central question because getting Jesus right is, the, is eternally the most important thing that you individually must do and that we must do together. Because we as a church have to get Jesus right. We have to help each other get Jesus right. We have to rub off those parts that are not right. Sand them off so that we get Jesus as He is. This is most clear, really, to me in the last verse, verse 20, when He strictly charged His disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. <laughs> now, I hope it bothers you when Jesus tells His disciples that. Right? I mean, I hope that Pastor John tells you that you should be telling people about Jesus so often that when you see that Jesus says, don't say anything about me, that you... That makes you uncomfortable. Why would Jesus want them not to tell? And this will become very clear next week, so I want to invite you back next week. But let me just simply say that Jesus knew that people would attempt to bend him to their wills. If they knew or if they heard the Messiah was here, it would mean different things to different people. And then there will be all kinds of misunderstandings to undo in order so that people would see the Messiah for who He is. And so He said, just hold off for a little while. I'll have, you, <laughs> I'll have you tell people about me soon enough. But hold off for a little bit. Because they had traveled with him for three years. They, they had the backstory. They understood that he was different. That he was the Son of God and could walk on water and could feed 5,000 and could heal people from a distance. All of these things we've read about. But other people wouldn't. Everyone else would say, our generation needs liberation from Rome. Maybe he'll do that for us. And so he said, just hold off for a little bit. Now all of this together invites me to ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? I mean, again, your answer, can be, your answer can be exactly what Peter said, right? 
you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if for some reason you mean something different by those things than Jesus meant, you'll miss the point. If for some reason Jesus is for you someone you use to help your family turn out great or to make your problems go away or to give you a comfortable life, you can call Him Jesus, but you mean something different by that name than He means. So ultimately, I want to invite you to answer the same way that Peter did. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to answer that in complete submission to Jesus as He has revealed Himself to be so that you all end up believing in a Jesus that you don't make up. That you end up believing in Jesus as He reveals Himself to be and you submit to Him in repentance and faith. And when we all do that together, we would say, Jesus is building His church on Himself. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we underestimate Jesus. I have under... Uh, I have underspoken about him this morning. But Father, would you continue to fill in what is missing to help our deficits that we might see Jesus more clearly day after day, week after week, year after year, that one day when it comes time for us to walk into his presence, that we might recognize him. And so, Father, I pray that you would build your church now. Identify us with Jesus. And help us to believe in him with all our hearts. Amen.